We're racing through uh, the Old Testament. It's July, everybody. And uh, we're nearly there. We're going to do three more Sundays after today on the Old Testament. And then we're going to take a break through August in order to come back to the New Testament with great enthusiasm on the 4th of September. What we've done, uh, if you haven't been paying any attention at all, what we've done is we've gone event to event through the Old Testament story. The clue is in the title of the series. So creation, calling of Abraham, life of Joseph, for example, the exodus, wilderness, promised land, the reign of the kings, uh, exile and all of that stuff. We've stopped along the way to look at a few of the books that fall loosely or fall outside that historical uh, journey. Books like Ruth and Jonah and Job and Song of Songs. What we haven't done is to look at every book in the Bible. And uh, the reason for that is, during the exile, for example, that we've been looking at both last week and the week before, there were a number of other books that describe or speak into that period of time that we've barely mentioned, if at all. So whilst we've looked at the books of uh, Daniel and Esther to think about the period of time called the exile, there are other books like Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Obadiah that also uh, come from that period of time. So maybe next year or another occasion we'll go back and do some mini-series uh, around some of these books that we've kind of not so much missed but haven't been part of our journey because I've wanted us to focus on the story. It's his story, history, that he calls us to be part of, real events in real time. So this morning uh, we're looking at events that people just a generation earlier thought they would never, ever see. Maybe there's been something you thought to yourself, I will never see that in my lifetime. And you did. I guess some of us can think of some of the big historical changes that have happened over the last 20 or 30 years. And if we'd been asked before those, did we anticipate that we would see that happening? We might well have said, I I never thought I would see that in my day. What those people thought who had been taken into exile under the mighty power of the Babylonians, they had thought to themselves they would never, ever see. It would not be possible. It was beyond their wildest dreams that their people should ever return, let alone rebuild the temple, not least the city of Jerusalem as well. It was out of their frame of reference, even though God had promised them it would happen. About 150 years before the events that we're looking at uh, today, say between 100 and 150 years, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And 150 years ago, that prophet spoke into the situation that we will read about uh, today. He spoke prophetically, looking into the future, uh, and said, one day you will go into exile. So when it happens, don't be surprised. But you also need to know that not only one day will you go into exile, God is promising you in advance that one day you will return. And here in Isaiah, he gives some detail about how the return will take place. And and the very king that's responsible for the Jews returning to their homeland is named those years previously King Cyrus. What they believed God would never do, God was now doing. 
And God had spoken to other people, not just Isaiah, but Jeremiah, for example. And God had said to Jeremiah, look, when this calamity of the exile happens, warn and remind the people that I'm still in control, and after 70 years, I will bring them back. We are at the 70 years period of time. So what is it in your life that you're thinking, this can never turn around? What is it in your life that you're thinking, I will never see the day that? And some of you are thinking about those things that you know maybe God has already spoken to you about. And it's a question of your faith or your unbelief. God has said that that will happen, that person will come back to Christ, that situation will be resolved, and yet in your moments of unbelief you're going, I cannot ever imagine the day when I see that take place. So the big message of the exile, the big themes of this period of time when the the people of God are are crushed because of their sin, they're taken away into exile, uh, and they they have to learn what it means to trust God in in a foreign land before he brings them back. The big message of the exile period is that God is bigger. God is bigger. God is bigger, God is stronger, God is greater, higher than any other. And that's where we are as we enter Ezra chapter 1. God is doing something that they hadn't believed would be possible and it was unfolding before their very eyes. So would you turn with me to Ezra chapter 1, if you don't have it open in front of you already. It's page 473, if you've got a Bible from the pew. Uh, If you haven't, Ezra comes just after Chronicles, and a few books before the Psalms, which is generally in the middle of the book. Ezra chapter 1. Don't miss the irony, the humor, the wink of God in these opening verses. Who is it that announces the return of God's people back to God's land? Who makes it possible for God's people to rebuild both the temple and in due time the city itself? Well, here it is. In the year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And essentially verse 2 and 3 is what he says, go on, go back, go back, go back to your homeland and there you can start to rebuild your lives. Who showed Cyrus those prophecies? The one here is is the one that's mentioned in verse 1 is the prophecy of Jeremiah. I have no doubt that Cyrus would have been showed the prophecies of Isaiah as well. Was it Daniel who was in the court at that time? Maybe. Who knows? But don't miss the wink of God here. It's a pagan king who makes this possible. It was a pagan king that brought judgment on the Jewish people for their rebellious ways. It was a pagan king that kept them constrained in exile. It's now a pagan king that will enable them to return. Who's in charge of kings and queens, even pagan ones? The mighty big theme of the exile is it doesn't matter where you are or who you're with. God is sovereign. And if God could use a pagan king to judge his people, and if he could then use another pagan king to restore his people, I think God might be able to use you. 
And sometimes we think, oh, God can't use me. Well, well, here he is, using anybody and everybody for his purpose. Usually, I think, our God is too small. Because we think that his reign and his reach, well, maybe it extends in the church, but it's a little bit hampered beyond that. God's reign and God's reach is to the ends of the earth. And so we read verse 2 and 3. They can go back and build the temple. He provided them with protection money, verse 4. He gave them back all the articles of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken, verse 7. What an amazing turnaround in just these few verses. God is on the move. One minute they're in captivity, the next they're on their way back home. Never underestimate God's ability to turn something around. Even in moments. I'm sure you've had times in your life when almost in, a, in an instant something has completely changed. Often we remember the bad ones where in a moment everything changed. But God can change anything and everything in a moment. And this is the story of the exile. It doesn't matter whether you were with that first group that went into exile, whether you were with the group in exile, or whether you're now going to be part of this group that are going to go home. God can turn anything round at any moment. Sometimes you have to wait a very long time for God, don't you? Yeah? But he's never late, is he? He's never early. Rarely early. But he's never late. And at the right moment, he turns it around in an instant. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope for those things you know God has settled with you in your heart, but you still haven't seen yet. Don't let go of those things you know one day you can almost see it will be true. But everything around you suggests that it will never be. Don't sell out to what you see around you. But notice verse 5, there, tucked in the middle of these verses. Notice verse 5, then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Got to get the moment. For this whole exile period, they couldn't believe it, but they dreamed of what it would have been like to go back home. Imagine if we, the past is always better, isn't it? Imagine if we were back in Jerusalem. Imagine if we had our own jobs, our old, our old houses. Imagine if we had our old way of, how much better things would be if we were back then. They'd waited for it, they'd yearned for it, they'd probably given up praying for it. Maybe some of the faithful ones were still praying for it. You expect at Cyrus's command for everyone to rush to the loft to get the suitcase. Because we're going home. You expect there to be this mass exodus back to Jerusalem, back to Judah, back to Israel, back to their homeland. It's what they longed to happen. But here, interrupting the flow, we get a qualifier. The family heads of Judah and Benjamin, verse 5, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved. Does that mean there were some people whose heart God had not been able to move. Does that mean that some of God's people had harder hearts than Cyrus, who we read in the first verse, had his heart moved by God? Does that mean that some would miss out on the greatest moment in their 
lifetime, greatest moment in history, because their hearts were too hard to be moved. Yes. Chapter 2 will force us to think about the people who returned. It lists them. But in doing that, in celebrating those who did return, it highlights that there were many who did not. So if you add up the figures in chapter 2, and if you're bored, you can do that and tell me at the end. Close your ears now if you don't want to know the score. Around 49,987 people set out to go home. Which left around a million who didn't. Give or take. What's the story? Why are the people that sat down on the rivers of Babylon and wept for their homeland and said it's hopeless here, it's useless here, we can't worship, we can't do anything, being here is pointless. Why is that group of people that are offered the chance to go home essentially say, I'm too settled. Thank you, but no thanks. You see, over time... They were given freedom and opportunity in exile. Over time, some of them had got businesses. Some of them had got an education. They'd owned land. They'd built houses. Meet the people who, when the call of God came to be part of something mega that God was going to do in their day, said, too settled, thanks. Kids are in school. Cars in the drive. The garden's just how we want it to be. How on earth you do that? I've got no idea. We're too settled. we're, We're okay here. Thanks. All the best if you're going back home. This moment when most fail to go back is a reminder to us not to be too settled. It's a reminder that God calls us to be pilgrims and not settlers. It's underlined, isn't it? Because when they do go back, look at the beginning of chapter 3. When they do go back, what's the first thing, almost the first thing that they do? Chapter 3 and verse 4, the first thing they do when they go back, more or less, is they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. This is a festival that celebrated their time in the wilderness years. This is a festival that celebrates celebrated the time when they were on the move, when God was providing for his people that were moving from place to place. And it celebrates a time when God provided for the people who were looking and longing for a distant country. It celebrates a time when they were pilgrims and not settlers. We're to be pilgrims. And we've met this idea, of course, before with Abraham. Abraham was called to be a pilgrim and Hebrews 11, celebrates the fact that he lived like a pilgrim by faith when uh, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. They lived in tents. It was temporary. It was transient. They were staying, yes, but only for a while. In the end, Abraham was was settling there, uh, was, was passing through there because he had his sights on something else. 
And so this whole idea of the Israelites walking through the wilderness was that they were journeying to a promised land. And that became a theme of God's people that were to live life in, in this life, journeying towards another place. Moving on towards a promised land. Not to get too settled by the here and now, because in the end it would not be our home. We were pressing to another country, a better city. If we do not live with the sense that we are made for another world, I think we might end up being too settled. And if we end up being too settled, this story reminds us we're in danger of saying no precisely when we should be saying yes. C.S. Lewis in uh, Mere Christianity writes about the fact that creatures are born with certain desires that need to be fulfilled. So he says, this is his uh, line of reasoning, he says, well, a baby's hungry, baby has this desire for hunger, well, that's a good thing, because you can feed a baby, and and therefore uh, quench that desire, meet that desire. He says a duckling wants to swim, that's okay, he says, because there's water, you can put a duck on water. Men, he says, feel sexual desire. He doesn't mention the ladies, I have no idea why that is, but uh, well, he says, that's okay, because there is such a thing as sex. And so he talks about human beings with all these different desires that we can find fulfillment to a certain extent towards in this life. But what he says of deeper desires that this world has never been able to satisfy. He writes, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy but only to arouse, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they're only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. These people in Babylon had settled for a lesser vision, to use the words of last week. They'd lost sight that it wasn't their home. They'd lost sight that this wasn't the country that they were a part of. They'd lost sight that this wasn't the king in the end that they were to give their honour and allegiance to. Is there a danger that you might be too settled here? Lewis continues, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it go so snowed under or turned aside. I must make the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. We worry about doing that, don't we? Because there's a little phrase about being so heavenly minded you're of no earthly use. Is that true? Is that true? Hebrews 11. Uh, celebrates all those people of faith that made such a difference. And it talks about them having their focus on the country that is coming, on the kingdom that will one day be fully realised. This chapter 11 of Hebrews that celebrates the great men and women of the Bible who live by faith says the reason that they were so useful in this world, is because they had their gaze fixed on the next. 
C.S. Lewis again, he writes, it's only as we get a true focus of life in the shadow of eternity that we become most effective on earth for heaven. He goes on, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who, who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. I'll leave you to make up your mind. So when the opportunity came to the people of God in exile, the greatest opportunity of their lifetime, an opportunity that a generation or more would never see again, they simply said, we're too comfortable here. I'm too settled. I've got everything. I've got my ducks lined up. Thank you very much. I'm too at home in this foreign land. It's a massive challenge for us in the West, isn't it? Not to find ourselves too at home in this foreign land. So maybe you're identifying with those people that say, I'm too settled actually. I'd love God to do something mega in our day. But actually I'm quite settled, thank you. Maybe though you relate not so much with this group that was saying I'm too settled. Maybe you relate to the second group that we get introduced to here at the beginning of Ezra. The group that says, well, hey, I'm setting out. Well, I'm off. There's nothing I want more than to go back and to be part of what God is doing. There's nothing that I want more than to leave this place where it feels like the gods, small g, of this world are in charge. Where it feels like my life has been caught up in the grip of all these powers of which I seem to have no control. And I'm stepping back into God's promise and God's purpose for me. Get the suitcase. Let's leave in the morning. Well, a few things about setting out. Ezra chapter 2, verse 64. Look at what happened. The whole company numbered 42,360, besides their 7,337 men servants and maidservants. They also had 200 men and women singers, 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. When you turn up at the airport with your suitcase, this verse puts it into perspective. It's not so bad, is it? When the weight goes, woo! And EasyJet say, well, that'll cost you three times the cost of your flight to take that little hand luggage with you. So, imagine the effort of traveling with that group of people. You know, you're praying, aren't you, that the few hours you're going to spend on the plane the next few weeks isn't by a screaming child. You've got hundreds of them here, and animals, and mules, and camels, and donkeys, and you're going to make your way through. Look, we need to understand that if you're going to set out for what God wants you to do, it's going to be hard. You know, all that stuff about following Jesus is easy is never true. I haven't found anyone who's found that to be true. It wasn't easy to set out on God's purpose. And it was going to take a long time. The journey was about, well, depending on which route they took, it was between 700 and 900 miles. That's a couple of days' walk, isn't it? This is, this is a massive expedition. Hard and long and dangerous. It would require a lot of effort. 
If you want to respond to what God calls you to do, all those things will be true. This is the God who calls Abraham to leave his own country. This is the God who calls Hosea to marry an adulterous woman, the story we didn't look at as we went through the Old Testament. This is a God who called his son to die on a cross, who calls you. Let's not pretend it's ever going to be easy. If we're going to get more serious about what God wants to do with us, it's going to get harder and more messy, and more difficult. It's going to be like walking across the desert with 245 mules and 6,720 donkeys to get up in the morning. It's going to be hard. Let's not kid ourselves that it will be easy. And if that doesn't put you off, know that at times it will fill you with fear. Ezra 3, verse 3. They get back home, and they start to make some plans... And it says, verse 3 of chapter 3, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundations and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening. So they went back and they thought, well, what should we do first? The first thing we have to do is to build the altar so that we can start the sacrifices again, because the sacrifices is the way that we worship God, we make ourselves acceptable to God, and so on. All that stuff we did way back in Exodus. But it wasn't easy. Look what they did, despite their fear of the peoples around them. I love the honesty. They did it even though they were afraid. You know, I wait for me, for, for, for me not to be afraid before I do what God wants. And I don't think that's just me. I try and work it all out to eliminate the risk and the sense of fear. But here they, they, they said, we're going to do this afraid. I'm getting involved, even though I'm scared. I'm going to do this, even though I'm uncertain. I'm going to step out for God, even though it makes me feel uncomfortable, even though it's a a risk, even though I don't quite know the end from the beginning. Because that's faith. Without faith, the Bible says, it's impossible to please God. If you want to please God, but have everything sorted out, so there's no faith involved, God says, forget it. I'm not in that. But I am in those people who will say, I'm scared of this. I don't understand this. I don't know which way this is going to go. I don't know how all this is going to turn out. But what better thing can we do back in God's land than to start building the altar again? That God must be in this, so I'm in. God is in those situations where we hand on heart say, this is what God's asking me to do, and I'm going to do it anyway, even though I'm scared out of my wits. Find a testimony of someone who's made a difference, who said at the beginning they were not afraid. So I take huge comfort from the honesty of uh, these verses. But don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of why you might walk across the desert with your camels and your donkeys and your mules. Because of the God moment. Or the God moments. These are those moments when you know you were in the right place at the right time doing the right thing and everybody knows God's in this. You had moments like that in your life? I hope so. And God's right. This is, this is the moment that I know God's kingdom is touching earth, that heaven's touching earth. And if they had not gone back, they would have missed this momentous moment of starting again the sacrifices that would not, that would, in effect, lead all the way to the sacrifice of 
Jesus as we trace the history through the Old Testament. So there they are, back in the promised land, standing on the site of the temple, starting the sacrifices again. It was those, it was that moment that you would tell your grandchildren, your great grandchildren, and you want that great, hey, my granddad, my great granddad, my great great granddad, he was there, you know, when we got going again as the people of God. So what God moments do you long to see? What do you long to see in your life when heaven touches earth? Maybe you long to be here and see someone going through the waters of baptism, your neighbor that you shared Jesus with. Maybe you long for the person that you've been praying for and encouraging, mentoring, step out into, into a new vision that God has for their lives. Maybe you're longing for a member of your family or someone in your community or a particular situation to, to, be, to be given. But what's the God moment that you're longing for? And you see, when they were standing on that altar, on that foundation stone, digging the foundation and standing, you, think you, can, can you can imagine them saying, I, I wouldn't have missed this for the world. I, I'd swap anything. I wouldn't swap anything, rather, to to be here in that moment. What are those moments that you're holding on to God for? And would you leave the things that make you so settled and feel safe and secure? Would you leave those things for that moment? So are you too settled? Or are you setting out? And then there's a third group of people to meet just as we... Uh, draw to a close this morning. A third group of people that uh, uh, we get introduced to, the same group but a different moment in their, in, in their life. Chapter 4. So basically chapter 3, they go back, they rebuild the temple, uh, the foundation at least. Sorry, not the temple itself, just the foundation. And they had this fantastic moment of singing and celebration and rejoicing. He is good, his love to Israel and Jews forever. What do you always look out for? After a God moment. Who's just around the corner when God is at work? The devil. Just around the corner. Key verse, key word rather, verse 1. When the enemies, when the enemies, there will always be people and spiritual powers that are against what God is doing in this world. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Hmm, let us help you build. Because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Hmm, really, we're just like you, really. Can we join you? Subtle attack. They responded well, actually. They met together, they chatted together, and essentially, verse uh, uh, 3, they said, no. No, we can see through all of that. You've got no part of us, really. We're about what God is doing, and we need to keep ourselves pure. So well done to them. But then the enemy comes back. You notice that? The enemy comes back again and again. And the enemy always uses, or more often than not, uses these two Tools, discouragement and fear. Verse 4, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid 
to go on building. Discouragement and fear. How easy is it to discourage somebody? It's dead easy to discourage someone, isn't it? So no credit to these guys, no credit to Satan. It's dead easy to discourage someone. And in our discouragement, who do we align ourselves when we discourage others? Who do we align ourselves with? When we create fear, the opposite of fear is what? Yeah, trust, faith. When we, when we introduce fear, who are we aligning ourselves with? Discouragement and fear. You see it over and over again in the Bible. It comes from the pit of hell. Discouragement and fear. And it began to eat away at them day after day after day after day like a dripping tap. Have you gone through a time of persistent discouragement and fear and you're saying to yourself just now, do you know what? I'm stopping. I'm stopping. I've had enough. I've had enough. On top of all that, the king seemed to change his mind. It was a new king, and after this period of discouragement and fear, the king writes this edict that really they should stop doing their work because he thought that they were a a threat. Where was their faith in God who, who turned around these pagan kings and allowed them to go back? Where was the faith in in God who'd enabled this pagan king to release all the treasury of the temple that they might take it back to Jerusalem with them? All that faith was gone. That's what discouragement and fear does. It takes away all our faith. Makes us lose sight of who God is and what he can do. And so they're at the bottom of their pit. And so they've got no fight left in them. When the king writes and says they've got to start work, oh well that's it then. Verse 24, thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. I meant to look before I came out how long that is. I think from memory it's 16 years. The point is this, when we discourage people and when we, 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 we create fear rather than faith, it might take them an awful long time to get going again. Someone can spend years getting up the courage to say, do you know what, I'm setting out. I'm going to be part of this rebuilding. And you can crush that in a moment. And we need to be careful where we align ourselves in God's kingdom work. All kinds of good intentions sometimes. But we can snatch what God is doing so easily and so quickly. And the work on the house of God came to a standstill. So my question, are you in danger of stopping? Because it's been really tough? Are you in danger of stopping? God raised up two prophets at this crucial time, Haggai and Zechariah. You can read their words in the books that bear their name in the Bible. And God sent these two prophets back to the people to do what? To lift their gaze back to God. The only thing, the only answer to discouragement is exactly the same as the only answer to fear. And that's a new vision of God. Now notice that Job in his suffering, what did he need? He needed a vision of God. Notice what Daniel needed in his crisis. He needed a vision of God. It's what we all need at every moment. is to see who he is. And discouragement fades and fear turns to faith. And so Haggai and Zechariah were sent back to, uh, were sent to the people to, to encourage them not to lose heart, to urge them to get their focus back on God. And as I say, you can read their stories. And after this period of time, there's a new king, King Darius. 
And uh, uh, the, the people, because of what Haggai and Zechariah had said, start working again. They get their courage back, they get their faith back. They think, hey guys, we can do this. Let's start building. And they did build, and uh, the enemies again said, oh no, you don't. They write a letter back to the king. That was a strategy that worked last time, so they thought they'd try it again. They write to the king of the world power, the Medes and the Persians, and they say to this king, you don't want these Jewish guys to start rebuilding again because they'll become powerful, and then they'll revolt. And King Darius, King Darius, with some wisdom, responds to the letter by saying, let's check out the story. Let's check out whether it is true that King Cyrus, his predecessor, had indeed issued an edict that the people of God could go back. And of course, if you know the story, you'll know that they found the edict. And so Darius says, well, look what he says, verse 6 of chapter 6. Verse 6 of chapter 6. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shesar Bozene, and you there, fellow officials of that province, stay away from there. Leave them alone. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of Trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine and oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily without fail. So the enemies, they wrote to the king and they said, don't let them carry on with the work. The king said, I'm going to check this out. King checked this out and said, actually, I want them to carry on and I want you, the enemies who hold the purse strings, to give them the money every day. The wink of God, the humor of God, The brilliance of God turning the tables again in favour of his people. Paid for by the king's treasury. So I want to say to you maybe if you feel like stopping this morning. I say to you maybe you feel just overwhelmed by discouragement and, and fear. But God can be trusted. God is faithful. And what he's put in your heart... He is more than able to bring to fruition. If he can make pagan kings bow to the purpose in his people, he can do that for you. If he can use pagan kings, then he can use you as well. If God's placed something in your heart, uh, and maybe you set out with great enthusiasm, maybe just a week ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago, you set out with great enthusiasm, like those returning exiles, believing all that God would do, but somehow it all didn't go to plan, and you got overwhelmed with fear or discouragement or something else, and you think, well, I'm stopping, or maybe I've stopped. You see, like everything, when you start out full of faith and confidence, the only thing that happens next is the challenge, the awkwardness, the hard stuff, it gets difficult. Do you know you're walking across back to Jerusalem and donkeys go missing and camels won't walk anymore and the children are crying. What is this that God's brought me to? Maybe that's where you are. What is this? I've lost all my vision, all my get up and go. I don't know who I am or what I'm trying to do anymore. Remember these people who got overwhelmed with discouragement and fear, but God sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who enabled them to see God once more and to carry on. And that's where the story for us this morning ends.
You see, verse 13 of chapter 6. Then because of the decree King Darius had sent, the governor of Trans-Euphrates and this other chap, whose name is almost impronounceable, and their associates carried it out with diligence. You expect the next verse to say, so the Jews continued to build and prosper under the reign of Darius, because it was Darius that made it possible. But they didn't say that. Notice how their vision had changed. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching, under the vision of God, brought by Haggai and the prophet Zechariah. They finished the temple according to the command of the God of Israel, and then secondly to the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. It was the vision of God that made the difference. And I need that. I need to see God bigger and stronger and higher out there if I'm to be useful for him out there. So I don't know where you are as we just allow this to settle in our hearts this morning. I don't know whether you're thinking, well, I'm too settled. Then maybe there are moments already that I've missed. God was saying, this is the moment, and I'm going, well, my grass needs cutting, or my whatever it is. Grass is just a metaphor. I don't know why I choose grass, because I hardly cut mine, probably. Um, I don't know. But you know that, that, I've got it all worked out here. I can't possibly do anything more for God, because I've I've got all this going on. And, And I don't mean to belittle that at all. You know, we live in a world where all this is going on, and we can spend all day, every day, organizing our lives and still surround ourselves with quite a bit of disorder because just the, the, the volume of stuff and everything that impinges upon us and our time and so on. And maybe you're, you know, well, I'm just too settled. I, I just cannot move from where. You need a vision of God. You need God to show you that God moment that he wants to lead you to. That place that when you're in it, you will say, well, I wouldn't have exchanged this for the whole world. This is what matters. And so you start to set out for that God moment like that second group of people did. Or maybe you're just setting out and you're full of enthusiasm. Let me tell you, it's going to be hard. You know, walking camels across the desert is hard. Donkeys and mules and kids and families and not to mention wives. Getting them across the desert will be hard as well. It's going to be tough doing what God's asked you to do. And so don't be surprised. You know, sometimes we say, it all worked out perfectly, therefore God's in it. Have you ever heard someone say that? God must be in it because that happened, that happened, that happened, and that happened. All worked out fine. Well, you might be right. But most of the time in the Bible, it was hard, it didn't work, they needed to do that, then this, then there was this struggle, then there was that struggle, and God still worked his purpose out. Isn't that the Bible story? Most of the time. Don't be surprised when it's hard, when it's tough. But why? Why? Because of the moment of heaven touching earth. And maybe you're just exhausted and you said, Simon, I get all of that. I was full of enthusiasm once, but I'm fed up with discouragement and fear and quite frankly, I'm stopping. You need a vision of God. That's all that will do to change our hearts. Let's sing together and allow the God who we worship, who's bigger and higher, to fill our gaze. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you.